0: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You heard her. Go subscribe.
0: Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question, where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin.
1: Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I have a big question for my listeners, which is what happens when in sickness and in health becomes in sickness? Well, today's guest author, Suzanne Marriott, addresses that question and many others in her memoir, Watching for Dragonflies, A Caregiver's Transformative Journey. She joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about that and so much more. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Suzanne.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Oh, I'm excited to have you here, Suzanne. And I have to ask the the question that I ask all of my guests up front, which is, where does your story as an author begin?
2: Well, I've always enjoyed writing, you know, from the first grade when I was tracing letters. And I think the first time I really remember writing something was in the eighth grade. It was a, an essay we had to write about patriotism. <laughs> Rereading it later, it was rather embarrassing. But at the time, this was during the 50s, during the Cold War. So it was, we were hiding under the desks in case of an atomic Last. So anyway, right. that, that was the background.
1: Well, you know, it it doesn't cease to amaze me how many authors tell me that there was something that happened to them in grammar school, in middle school, where they discovered their love of writing. Now, of course, they, they weren't ready to be published back then, but there was something in them, some so- sort of gift or encouragement given to them by a teacher, a librarian, somebody noticed something in them, and they encouraged them to To develop that, did you have anybody in your life who was particularly encouraging?
2: Well, I always loved reading. So in high school, I loved my English classes and I wrote, I liked writing essays, so I did get good grades. So that was encouraging. But much, much later, I got a second master's in transpersonal psychology in Palo Alto, California. And I, I took a writing class, it was a small group, and the writing teacher was just so supportive and encouraging, and we would share with, the, with our small group. And I got just a lot of encouragement and support from that group. So that, that was very instrumental in keeping me on track to continue writing.
1: Yeah, I was a psychology undergraduate. That was my major, and I, I know there's a lot of writing, a lot of research you do. And I imagine at the master's level, the the research is even more. But there's a there's a there's the whole publisher Paris thing at that level. Were you did you were you publishing anything in in peer reviewed journals at the time?
2: No, I wasn't. My professors were, yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't. Yeah. Right. Later, when I, I I was a teacher at the end of my career, I was the grant writer, grant proposal writer for my district. And, of course, I did a lot of writing and was very successful. So that was encouraging. And I learned a lot about economy of language. Had to because there were, you know, word with only so many words. (laughs) Sure. Well, let's
1: talk about um, let's talk about your memoir, which is Watching for Dragonflies, A Caregiver's Transformative Journey. Suzanne, where do you want to start by by talking about this book?
2: Well, I could start at the beginning. That's probably Um, a good place to start. My husband was a very unusual truck driver. He had uh, his family went way back to the original teamsters with uh, with horse drawn, whatever they were drawing <laughs> in the wagons. And so he was. It was a shock when I was sitting in my in my office. I was doing grant writing then, and I got a call from him, and he said he had collapsed on the job, and he couldn't get into his truck, and of course was immediately. Frightened and worried. So that began our journey because he was soon diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis. And so that was, that totally threw our life into a whole different scenario. And I rather quickly learned that I would be his caregiver and that we would have to work together to to address the challenges that were coming at us
1: and And I know with with m s it's it's not an overnight diagnosis. I mean, there's a lot of tests and things that have to be ruled out before you can get the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. how How long was his his journey from from when he collapsed to when you had a diagnosis?
2: Actually, it was rather quick. Oh interesting. The next day we had an appointment with with our primary care doctor. We had the same one who then, Said, you know, it could be MS or it could be something else. Because he had had one of the precursor symptoms a long, long time ago, which would have to do with eyesight. And so the next day, we saw the neurologist and he went over the symptoms and especially the tendency to be negatively affected by heat. And he ruled out having to do a, a spinal tap. He he did some other tests and rather quickly we got an MS diagnosis. And then Michael went and I went with him to to the clinic, I think in the next day or maybe in a couple of days. And he had infusions of what's called solumedrol. And that went on for several days and it, it helped immediately like it was supposed to. But of course it wasn't a permanent solution.
1: Yeah. So paint a picture of your life with Michael before the diagnosis. How, how would you characterize what your life was like?
2: Well, we'd been together for 20 years. We were very much in love. We did have our problems, one of which was a power struggle. He would be very critical and I would be very defensive. And I had a, an aggressive kind of fighting back reaction. And he would usually retreat and then I would follow him and then I would cry. And eventually, you know, we'd make up and everything would be fine. And then it would happen again. Right. But when that, but that was offset by our very close relationship or enjoying being together, doing things together, reading books together, going to plays and things like that.
1: So you had some. I mean, it was somewhat of an active relationship. You, you were doing lots of things together. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm curious. How did how did the relationship change since or after he was diagnosed?
2: Well, first of all, we wanted to figure out what was going on. So in the beginning, we concentrated on getting information. Uh, we went to MS Society workshops, which they had then. Eventually, we joined support groups. I was in the caregiver support group, and he joined two support groups for MS patients, which were very helpful for both of us. So, gradually, things changed. We looked down the line. We looked into a lot of alternative therapies, bee sting therapy. I mean, all kinds of things that were out there, you know, getting all your fillings taken out. So, the surgery wasn't, we didn't do that, but it was a lot of learning in the beginning.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. And I'm sure it's a, a lot of emotion, too. A lot of a lot of uncertainty. Yes. Um, and, you know, uncertainty is always something that is challenging to, to live with. I mean, you've got, you know, a, a major health concern, but also it's the uncertainty and timelines. And, you know, I'm curious, what, what did you learn about yourself as a caregiver during this time? Because you were his primary caregiver. And that, this, of course, is what your your book focuses on. But you know, what would you what would you learn about? What did you learn about yourself as a caregiver?
2: Well, I learned first of all that I had to alter my behavior as far as this fighting wind, and the only person you can change is yourself. So I did a lot of work on becoming more responsive and less reactive. And developing compassion for our situation for Michael and for myself, and gradually as 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 I changed because I knew if we had big fights it would negatively affect him. You know, as I changed, so did he, and gradually we learned to work together. He began to trust me and and I began to trust that we could work together and and be successful in 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 addressing. What was going to come up? We didn't know it. Would, the uncertainty was always there. But one of the things we wanted to do was do as much as we could that we used to do—travel and so forth—and just find different ways to do it. So not so much what could we do, but how could we do it?
1: Right. And what what did you learn about how you could do it? I mean, I know travel is—I'm sure—something that's very difficult. You know, it's, particularly once you get into later stages, and, and mobility is much more. Impaired, but what, what, you know, how, how did you, how did you do it? How, how did you, how did you travel with him?
2: Well, it had many different iterations. In fact, there's a lot in my book about traveling with disability. At first, well, at, I won't say at first, but soon we bought a used small RV, Winnebago Le Charo. And Michael was, using hiking poles at that time for his stability and with that uh we found we could go on short trips first because whenever he was tired he could relax and he could rest and that happened frequently and often he'd be resting and i'd go off walking but i'd be you know in contact and then eventually we did some longer journeys in that rv and we went to campgrounds, and fortunately, with he, by then, he had a disability placard. So the state parks are wonderful in accommodating people with disabilities. So we did some traveling that way.
1: Did you give that Winnebago a nickname? I'm sorry? Did you give that Winnebago a nickname by any chance? No, we we didn't, actually. <laughs> I'm just curious if you came up with anything clever there. How did how did you find help and support? I know you mentioned kind of joining a support group for caregivers, but I also know as as you know, being a, a caregiver at times in my life and and seeing and being close with caregivers, caregivers need support too. They need help. They need care. How, how did you find care for being a caregiver?
2: Well, at first I just kept plugging along, and but I did. I was in therapy. I I had a Julian-oriented therapist. So she helped me a great deal in as far as my emotional life went. I also, as I mentioned, was in a support group for caregivers who had a spouse or a loved one with MS. And that was very, very helpful because we could share and support each other. and, And I learned all kinds of wonderful things, got great information there. And at a certain point, I realized, though, that as things got more and more difficult, that I did need help. So I hired a wonderful woman. Her name was Una. And she came in in the mornings because it got to the point where, at this point, Michael was in a wheelchair. Well, no, he wasn't quite. He was just before he went in the wheelchair we started. And, and, And she was a wonderful person who really related to him. And she helped with bathing, dressing, which, which was quite a quite evolved. And then when Michael was in the wheelchair, of course, helped help that have really, really needed that help.
1: Yeah.
2: Since He was a big man. He was 6'5". And uh, there, was, there were certain things I just couldn't do. And uh, between the two of us and, and with her help, we could do them.
1: What prompted you to take your experiences and sort of transform them into a memoir?
2: Well, during this, I had always kept journals for a long, long time. And during this time, I was just, I don't know if it was guided or what, but I, I kept journals 12 over those 10 years, documenting what was happening, how I was feeling, how things were changing, how I was changing. And I would take these, mostly after Michael passed, I would take these into my therapy sessions. And my therapist was a wonderful woman, and she said, I really think you could turn these into a memoir that would help other caregivers. So that was the impetus. And, you know, I... Michael passed away in 2006, and I I just recently got a publisher. So it was a long, long journey of constantly rewriting and refocusing that that brought that memoir into fruition.
1: Did you find that 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 writing journey was in any ways therapeutic for you?
2: Definitely. Definitely. It helped me see things, see the whole picture. See how I had changed uh, for the better, how I'd grown, and how our relationship had deepened. The intimacy had increased through trust and, and love.